Folks, if you could have open before you there um, that chapter which Anna just read for us, 2 Kings chapter 2, on page 369. I don't know about you, but I, I love this time of year, um, probably even more so than the midsummer. There's something about spring when everything is starting to, to come to life and uh, almost being reborn that I really enjoy. And something really exciting happened to me, and I haven't had a chance to talk to many people about it, so I thought I'd tell you. I, I saw a new bird this week. Um, now, before you're worried about the state of my marriage or the derogatory way in which I'm speaking about women, I, I, I mean a bird. I'm a bird watcher. Um, not, not a hardcore bird watcher, but I, I enjoy uh, seeing. And I saw a bird this week that I'd never seen before, and I doubt that many of you have. Hands up if you've ever seen a tree creeper. Anybody? Yeah, Edna has and Esther has. Not a bird that many of you will have seen. I saw this from my study window. So Hawthornden Road, um, all of 20 yards away from the, the ring road, the busy dual carriageway, not renowned uh, as a wildlife haven. Um, And yet, uh, I was sitting in my study working, glanced out the window and saw a a bird and I couldn't understand its behavior. It looked like nothing I'd ever seen before. A tree creeper, so so what I did is I tried to work out, if if you've ever tried doing this, you'll know how it works. You you watch a bird, you you try to get a feel for for what's going on. from a distance, you can see the shape, the, the broad shape of it. You look for a few markings here and there, and then I scurried downstairs to look it up in my book, my, my bird book. So I discovered it was a tree creeper. They're the weirdest birds. They walk up a tree. So that's, that's why I noticed it, because I thought, that doesn't look like anything I've seen before. So this bird lands on a tree and just slowly walks up. And then... It, this is the really weird part. They, they can only walk up the tree. So when they get to the top, they have to fly to the next tree, to the bottom of the next tree, and walk up it. Isn't that weird? And great at the same time. I just thought I'd tell you about that because it was new to me. Sometimes we think nothing new ever happens in life. Well, I saw a tree creeper this week, and it was just brilliant. Folks, we're going to look this evening at, at another section of God's Word, and and we're hoping that he'll tell us something, that he'll speak to us uh, through his Word. That's always our our desire. Uh, We believe that this is is God's Word given to us for us to to hear his voice, to learn, and to be changed. So let's pray that, that that will be our experience. Let's pray. Father God, your, your word teaches us that you're all about giving new life. You're about seeing people reborn, seeing them changed from the old and the stale and the dry into the fresh and the vibrant and the new. Lord, we pray that you'd do a little bit of that work here this evening as we study at your word, just for a few moments together. Come and speak to us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. As we read that passage, you probably gathered that it's actually it's the end of the story for Elijah, uh, one of the, the best-known prophets of Israel, and certainly a very powerful one. 
Elijah, his days have been numbered really since 1 Kings chapter 19, because way back then we read of a moment when God told him to go and appoint his successor. Uh, That must be a weird thing to do, actually, to go and find the guy who's going to take your job. But that's what God asked Elijah to do. He, He went and found Elisha and anointed him to be the prophet who would take over in his place. By the way, I'm skipping over chapter 1. We don't often do this, just leave a chapter out entirely. Have a read of that yourself sometime. It's quite a strange chapter, and I think that the main thing that I'd ask you to look out for as you read it is Ahaziah is a king of Israel, and he clearly has no interest in, in God's word. Last week, Dave Gray helped us to see the importance of of paying attention to to God's Word when it comes to us. Well, Ahaziah, when he wants guidance for his life, he's a king of Israel, a a person of the community of God, and what does he do? He goes and seeks advice from a foreign idolatrous prophet. That's basically the gist of that chapter and the, the tragic outworkings of that kind of a way of life. I'll leave that to you uh, to to look at yourself. I'm going to focus our attention this evening on chapter 2, this Elijah and Elisha story. This story about God finally taking Elijah, told in verses 1 to 11 of our chapter, is in some ways it's quite puzzling. Uh, Why did Elijah keep running on from Elisha? Why did he... I, I don't know. And it's hard to tell, even from reading a few commentaries, why that might be the case. What is clear from what Elijah says in verse 10 is that he believes that Elisha needs to be with him at that moment when God calls him home. We don't really realize that in our reading until after we've seen this this mad chase. But it seems that all along, Elijah's known that Elisha was supposed to be with him, and yet you get the impression that what Elijah's trying to do is shrug him off. And it looks like another one of those moments where Elijah's not entirely acting as though he wants to be within God's will. It's almost like he's trying to resist what he knows God's will is. We don't really know what's going on there for sure. But the thing that really struck me is that Elisha his part in all of this is very sure. He will not let Elijah shake him off. Whether it's out of a sense of personal loyalty or whether it's an appetite that he has for God's call, this work that he's being called to, Elisha's hungry and he won't be put off. From Gilgal, he follows Elijah to Bethel. From Bethel to Jericho. From Jericho to Jordan. Three times he says the, the same uh, very stark, he makes the same stark commitment, I will not leave you. Maybe he too knows that he needs to be there uh, at, at the last moment for Elijah, and he, he knows he's going to be there. Elisha's committed to his calling, and he won't be put off. Folks, uh, the Bible contains many moments where God's people have persisted somehow with God. Do you remember that time when Abraham was negotiating with God for the lives of the people in the city of Sodom? He persisted and he persisted and he persisted. Do you remember Jacob? He wrestles with God 
uh, at the Jabbok River, and he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Ruth, the Moabitess, you remember her. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, encourages her to go back home. Go and find yourself a husband. I have nothing to offer you. But she refuses. She refuses to leave her mother-in-law in the lurch. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I'll stay. Even Jesus' disciples... Um, when I read the Gospels, I'm struck by how many times Jesus has to, to challenge them and, uh, and to correct them. But even they knew how to persist at times. There was one time when all other people seemed to be, uh, seemed to be leaving Jesus. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Do you want to leave me too? And Simon Peter answered them, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm asking you this evening, how much do we persist in our walk with God? We live in a world that trains us in novelty and fickleness. I hope you understand that about our culture. There's nothing, so far as I can see in our culture, that will train us for for persistence and loyalty. If we are to to be the people of God, if we are to to demonstrate what Peterson calls a, a long obedience in the same direction, we need to step out of of this this particular aspect of our culture. We're going to notice over the next few weeks that God will use Elisha in very powerful ways. His ministry is going to surpass that of Elijah. And it seems to me that it's no coincidence that God chose to use in very powerful ways a man with this kind of persistence this dogged determination not to be left out of God's plans and out of God's calling. And I'm asking myself and I'm asking you to consider it for your life. How persistent are we? Do we fall back the first moment that that life with God becomes difficult? When we go through a, a dreary spell, when we we, we become a little bit deflated? Or, or, do, or do, we, do we do what Elisha did here? Do we persist? Do we, do we keep going from one town to the next and to the next if only we can be with God and in his will? In chapters, uh, sorry, verses 7 to 12, we get a further insight into Elisha's hunger for God. This bizarre chase of the opening six verses, it brings Elijah and his apprentice to the banks of the Jordan River. And we watch a pretty dramatic scene there. Elijah takes off his cloak and he strikes the water with it. And this is big stuff. This is putting Elijah kind of side by side with Moses, the kind of guy who can part the waters. And of course, that's exactly what happens here. The Jordan parts and Elijah... And Elisha, the two men, walked through on dry ground. 
And it's, it's there, I think, to, to remind us right till the end of God's power working through Elijah. When he gets to the other side, Elijah gives Elisha one last wish. Again, I find that kind of strange. It's like a, a genie in a bottle moment. Just before I go, what do you want me to give you? And Elisha's response speaks volumes for what's going on in this heart. I, I don't know if there are many questions that would show us what's going on in our hearts more than if somebody showed up before us and said, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Here and now. Whatever you want. Look, look at Elisha's response. He says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Elijah, I've watched you. I know that God's Spirit is at work in your life. I've followed you in your prophetic vocation. It's so obvious to me that God works through you. I want that. Nothing else. If I have that, I'll be happy. I couldn't help but be struck by Elisha's answer because it's what he doesn't ask for as much as what he does that interests me. He doesn't ask for protection. You know, he's following in the footsteps of a guy who spent most of his life on the run from a a royal family who would have taken his life just like that. Doesn't ask for protection. Lord, promise me safety. Keep me safe in this work that I'm going to do. He doesn't ask for success. Promise me that my prophetic work will be fruitful, that I'll reach thousands, that I'll turn the country upside down, that I'll be effective as your prophet. He doesn't ask for success. He asks for a similar spirit to Elijah. This young apprentice looks at his boss and he says he wants God's spirit to work in him every bit as much and twice as much. Then it worked in his mentor. I just wonder how I'd answer that question if I was asked it this evening. What would I ask for? I'd love to think that I'm the kind of person who'd respond immediately, spontaneously, uh, the way that Elisha did here. I'd love to think that God's presence in my life and my work were my absolutely spontaneous desire. Isn't that what we'd all, in our best moments, want? Want to be people full of God's Spirit, working uh, for Him. When I see how much Elisha was drawn to desire what Elijah had, I'm left asking the question, What kind of leadership do I offer those under my care? Just imagine with me for a moment. Um, You know, my ministry here is in transition these days. Uh, For the first period of time that I worked here, I worked pretty much on my own. And then Edna joined me a few years ago, and we became a staff team, team meeting of two. Um, And then recently, uh, Steve came and got to be involved in that. And now David's been around and is going to be coming on full-time in the summer to work here. So all of a sudden, 
we're becoming a staff team. What kind of a leadership do I offer those under my care? If they, they ask the, for what Alicia asked for, if they ask for the same spirit that is in their boss or their mentor, or, or even a double of that, what would they get? Would they get a, a little bit of limited experience in some pastoral settings? A little bit of know-how of how to run a church? as I share a catalog of the mistakes I made and said, don't do that and you'll be okay. Even a wee bit of technique in preaching God's Word. Is that the limit of what my colleagues, my team should expect from me? Or could I be someone for them who leads them into a deeper experience of the Spirit of God. That's what Elisha expects from Elijah. He, that's all he wants. Just give me that spirit that you have. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. The rest of the chapter here goes on to show that Elisha's request was granted. He got to see Elijah taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. He got to be there in that moment that was somehow important that we can't quite understand. And whenever he sees that, he tears his rope, his cloak in two. And that's just a demonstration. It means these clothes that I wore, this life that I lived, it's over. It's gone it's a little bit like what we were thinking about this morning, that when we, when we are born into Christ, we're dead to what we were before, and we begin something entirely new. Well, in a way, even before Christ, Elisha understands this. His life is now going to change irrevocably. He's being called into a new life with God. And he takes on Elijah's prophetic mantle. He knows that something new is going to happen. And, and now it's his turn to try this hitting the river with the cloak. Now, if I were Zelisha, I'd be terrified. Terrified. Because there's a sense that everything, my future hangs on this next moment, this slightly strange act on the banks of the Jordan River. And he says in verse 14, where now is this Lord, this God of Elijah? He's wondering, is all this stuff that we've been building up to, this, this following Elijah, this, this request I've made for, for God's Spirit to fall on me, is it going to happen or isn't it? And in probably the most vulnerable thing he'll ever do in his life, he lifts that cloak and he strikes that river and it parts. Because his request's been answered, because God's Spirit has fallen, because the anointing that God had, had told Elijah to give those few chapters ago has now taken effect. God is now working through Elisha 
every bit as powerfully as he did through Elijah. We'll spend the last few moments of our time together thinking about Elisha and this succession that happens in this chapter. But before we do that, I thought this would be a a moment to reflect quickly on the life of Elijah as we've read it in Scripture. Elijah was a great prophet of God, undoubtedly. He was the man for a crisis. If you remember, we were introduced to him as he he almost single-handedly took on the regime of Ahab and Jezebel. He played a pivotal role in a victory over pagan Baal worship in Israel. He was a man of great faith and courage, and the Bible clearly shows us that. But we've seen something else, haven't we? As we've read these narratives together. We've seen that he's like all the other characters that we call heroes of the faith, he too is flawed. Whenever he faces opposition um, from Ahab and Jezebel, he, he retreats at a moment when he could have trusted God. He, he, he throws aside his faith. He wants to throw aside his prophetic vocation. He, he wants to end his life at one moment. So much does he drift from trusting in God. And when God comes to him and speaks to him, God tries to put his work in a broader context. He says, you know, go and anoint Elisha. Go and appoint these two as as kings. And he doesn't do it. You get the impression that he doesn't want to do it if other people are going to get in on the act. If he can't be center stage, if he can't be the only show in town, then he starts throwing his toys out of the pram. That's Elisha, or that's Elijah. And there's a hint of it even in this chapter that we're reading here. Elijah, it turns out, uh, and this is uh, something I picked up in a commentary by Ian Proven, this analysis of Elijah's ministry. He said, Elijah did well when life went the way he expected. He was not so good at dealing with disappointed, and he was certainly not prepared to smooth the way for others. When things were good, Elijah was great. Once God started to ask some questions of him and his role in the overall picture, he he struggled a lot more. It seems to me that the we'll learn best from the life of Elijah is if we don't make him a hero of the faith, nor make him out to be a villain, but to say that he's an ordinary follower of the living God. He's somebody like us. He's somebody who gets it right some of the time. And Elijah definitely did that. There were times when he exercised great faith. But he's somebody who has his foibles, his weaknesses, his vulnerabilities, and his frailties, and they're writ large all over his life. And we've seen much of them. On a personal note, I have to say that I've been challenged considerably by this this one downside aspect of Elijah's character. I've been learning from his failures about the importance of having a a sense of perspective about my place in ministry. 
As I said, as soon as God showed Elijah that other people were going to be important, he started to struggle in his ministry. He seemed to be great while he was one man against a kingdom. But once God mentioned other people like Elisha and Jehu and Hazael, all of a sudden he doesn't do so well. Maybe he's the classic non-team player. Folks, each one of us needs to be willing to be a part of God's plan and never the whole of the plan itself. Elijah's got a a much later successor, John the Baptist, and he got this right. As he prepared the way for Jesus, at a time when he was very, very popular, he had people flooding to him from all over the country, crowds flocking to him. What did he say? He spoke of Jesus and he said, he must become greater. I must become less. Folks, that's a place where I've been challenged in this life of Elijah. That is finding your own place, your right place in ministry, and being content with that. Let's spend our last minutes together coming back to Elisha. God's power we've seen is clearly at work in him. And the rest of the chapter is there to illustrate that to us, just in case we've missed the significance of the parting of the Jordan. So there's two illustrations of God's power. One is a constructive display of his power. So he goes to Jericho, and the guys from Jericho Borough Council come to him and say, Elijah, listen, we're having trouble with the waterworks. The water's just not quite right. And Elisha says, comes along, throws some salt in, and he makes the water pure. And that's quite powerful because Jericho, we learned just a few chapters back in 1 Kings 16, was a city under curse. The guy who had rebuilt Jericho after it had flattened, been flattened, he... It, he did that work at the cost of his firstborn and his youngest son. This place is under a curse. But Elisha, the one with God's power working in him, can bring blessing to a cursed place. God loves to grant his grace and to forgive. So that's the first incident, a constructive display of God's power in, in Elisha's life. The strange incident there at the end of the chapter, we see a a destructive exercise of God's power by Elisha. This passage has become a personal favorite of mine in recent years. Um, I'd like to read it as God's vindication of balding people uh, against their oppressor. Um, Just read it and be careful. Next time you're about to make fun of a bald person, um, folks, I... I'm not convinced that hair loss and baldness is the key issue in this passage. The the problem here, the the sin of these young men, is that they refuse to recognize Elisha's authority. The events that we read about on the banks of the Jordan, the events that happened in Jericho, they, they mark... Elisha as a man who has God's spirit working in him. God's representative, if you like, 
for that community at that time. So for these young men to come and to to mock him, you mock God's representative. You mock God. That's that's really what's going on. This event, uh, whenever word of this bear mauling uh, would have traveled through the region, I think it would have reinforced among people that Elisha really is God's new prophet. He's not somebody to be trifled with. He's, he's not somebody to, to abuse or, or to, to humiliate. Folks, I want to try and wrap things up this evening by thinking with you about succession in the Christian faith. This is a chapter about succession, how Elijah the prophet is succeeded by Elisha. And my question is, how well do we pass our faith on? How well do we pass it from one generation to the next? Because this is what Jesus has called us to. The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus invites those who are his disciples to pass on the life of discipleship to others uh, all around the world, those on our doorstep, those across the street, to all with whom he brings us in contact. Our faith is about succession. It's about passing on the life of Christ to others. I wonder how well we pass it on from one generation to the next. Just this past week, I've enjoyed reading an article by Jason Gardner. He's a guy who works at the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, and he lectures there in youth discipleship. And in this article, Jason makes a a plea for churches to offer purposeful careers advice to their young people as part of their Christian discipleship. He urges us to confront the lie that secretly drives much of our young people's education, namely that financial security is the sole goal of a good life. After all, he continues... If that's the subliminal message that's being drip-fed to them through their learning, is it any wonder that they aspire to those roles in society that will seemingly allow them to amass all the wealth and possessions they could ever want? (coughs) Jason Gardner is asking us to consider whether we can offer our children and our young people an alternative to the idea that the only reason we get ourselves educated is to earn as much money as we can. Can we find a sense of purpose for ourselves and articulate it so clearly to our young people that they will know that the purpose of life is not solely to inflate our bank accounts. Can we pass this kind of of Christian living on to our young people? I thought I'd take a moment at the end of, of my time here this evening to do something that I don't think I've ever done in my time at Kirkpatrick, and that is to talk about ordained ministry. I don't make a big deal of ordination and of ministers, because my theology is one of the priesthood of all believers that says that we are all equal in Christ, 
that we all have equal value in the church. We simply have different roles. But tonight, I'm going to redress that balance of of never really talking about that very much. And I'm going to ask a question. Why is it that when our kids are showing promise as they're doing their GCSEs and they're doing their A-levels, that we start talking to them and saying, yeah, you're doing really well. You're churning out straight A's. You could be a doctor. You could be a lawyer. You could be an accountant. You could be in one of those professions that carries prestige in our world. You could be one of those. That's what we've trained you for. That's what this education has been all about. When was the last time we said to a 16-year-old, you're showing such promise, you have such a, a wonderful mind, such a wonderful way of thinking. Have you ever considered using those gifts to teach the Word of God? That flair that God's given you in, in literature or, or in crafting essays in, in words, you're a, you're a communicator, you're a born communicator. Why wouldn't we say that or something like that? I'm sorry, I don't mean to limit this only to ordained ministry. I'm talking about all those places where a person could commit themselves to to serving God. Folks, I'm asking the question about intentional Christian succession, learning to help our young people to think beyond drifting into careers solely because that's how the world works. Elisha didn't drift into his prophetic vocation. He'd seen something in his mentor Elijah that he wanted to be a part of. He was absolutely dogged in his determination that he would do everything that he could to to live this life. Folks, I wonder... Could we, as a community, birth this kind of vision in our younger people? See, this kind of succession in our discipleship here in Kirkpatrick Memorial. Let's pray. Father God, the great miracle at the heart of this chapter that we've just read is that you, the living God, are willing to dwell by your Spirit in people like us. Lord, make us hungry for more and more of your Spirit. Make that the goal of our lives, to to collaborate with you, to work with you, that we might receive your presence in power in our lives. And Lord, we've seen in this chapter how you naturally pass on this, this gift of the Spirit, this endowment of your presence from one generation to the next. Lord, would you teach us how to do this for our kids and for our young people? 
Lord, rescue us from this culture that we live in where all that we have to offer our kids is a chance to make a lot of money. Give us a much, much greater vision for them and for your church than that. And Lord, we pray that you would you'd continue to raise people up, that you'd continue to pour out your Spirit, and that you'd bless your people as you do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.